No, I got ready to come back up here, and then I'll look down and realize my, my microphone's about to die. So, yeah, you should probably check that before 10 seconds, so I'm supposed to be up here. So, um, yeah, and now I've lost my page. Um, I'll find it, no worries. Y'all, it's one of those days, right? Things just don't quite click like they're supposed to, and sometimes that happens. Um, you know that last song we sang, Come Thou Fount? Um, that one's it's one of my favorites, um, one of my favorite hymns, um, and... Some of, some of you have asked me, and we've talked about this in the sound booth. There's that line that says, here, I raise my Ebenezer. Y'all, is that foreign to most of you? Yeah, it's okay. I'm with you. And it was for me, too. So I started doing some digging, and I wanted to see what that meant. I wanted to see what, what in the world is this raising an Ebenezer? What is that? Um, actually, it comes from a Hebrew word. In 1 Samuel chapter 7, verse 12, that is not going to be where we're going to focus our time today. But 1 first chap- first Samuel uh, 7.12, it says, Afterward, Samuel took a stone and set it upright between Mizpah and Shen. He named it Ebenezer, explaining, The Lord has helped us to this point. And what Ebenezer means is the Lord helps. It means the Lord helps. So as we sing that, and we sing, Hither to this point I've come, or Hither by thy help I've come, what we're saying is, Lord, we recognize that you are the one that's moved us. It's your help that's brought us to where we are. Not something we've done on our own, but it's by your help. Um, and I thought that that might be a good, a good introduction because um, I'm going to need the Lord's help today, y'all. Um, not that I don't most weeks, but i got a lot I want to get to. Um, and so I've been told I talk fast anyway. Um, today we're going to talk even faster than normal because i got a lot I want to get to. And, um, and I don't know that I have enough time. And y'all are going to check out on me if I don't try to fly through it. So Nehemiah chapter 4. That's going to be our text today, Nehemiah chapter 4, that's where we're going to be. So I'd invite you, if you've got a Bible, open it with me. Um, this is possibly my favorite chapter in Nehemiah. I absolutely love this chapter. Oh, it's so rich, it's so good, and I, I, I love this. So um, typically at this point, I would start with some, i try to come up with some witty story or a fun introduction. I don't have that today because i got too much. Um, before I even thought about how to introduce this text, I had more pages than I usually have whenever I preach, so I thought, you know what, let's not tell some story. So anyway, what I'd like to do is let's go ahead and stand and let's read God's Word today. Um, we're going to be reading Nehemiah chapter 4, and I want to read the whole chapter. So, Nehemiah chapter 4, we're going to begin with verse 1. It says, When Sanballat heard that we were rebuilding the wall, he became furious He mocked the Jews before his colleagues and the powerful men of Samaria and said, What are these pathetic Jews doing? Can they restore it by themselves? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they ever finish it? Can they bring these burnt stones back to life from the mounds of rubble? Then Tobiah the Ammonite, who was beside him, said, Indeed, even if a fox climbed up what they are building, he would break down their stone wall. Listen, our God, for we are despised. Make their insults return on their own heads and let them be taken as plunder to a land of captivity. Do not cover their guilt or let their sin be erased from your sight because they have angered the builders. So we rebuilt the wall until the entire wall was joined together up to half its height for the people had the will to keep working. When Sanballat, Tobiah, and the Arabs, Ammonites, uh, and Ashdodites heard that the repair to the wall of Jerusalem was progressing and that the gaps were being closed, they became furious. They all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and throw it into confusion. So we prayed to our God and stationed a guard because of them day and night. In Judah, it was said, the strength of the laborer fails. Since there is so much rubble, we will never be able to rebuild the wall. And our enemy said, 
they won't realize it until, we, until we're among them and can kill them and stop the work. When the Jews who live nearby arrived, they said to us time and again, Everywhere you turn, they attack us. So I stationed people behind the lowest sections of the wall, at the vulnerable areas. I stationed them by families with their swords, spears, and bows. After I made an inspection, I stood up and said to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people, Don't be afraid of them. Remember the great and awe-inspiring Lord and fight for your countrymen, your sons and daughters, your wives and homes. When our enemies heard that we knew their scheme and that God had frustrated it, every one of us returned to his own work on the wall. From that day on, half the men did the work, while the other half held spears, shields, bows, and armor. The officers supported all the people of Judah who were rebuilding the wall. The laborers who carried the loads worked with one hand and held a weapon with the other. Each of the builders had his sword strapped around his waist while he was building, and the trumpeter was beside me. Then I said to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people, The work is enormous and spread out, and we are separated far from one another along the wall. Wherever you hear the trumpet sound, rally to us there. Our God will fight for us. So we continued the work while half of the men were holding spears from daybreak until the stars came out. At that time, I also said to the people, Let everyone and his servants spend the night inside Jerusalem so that they can stand guard at night and work by day. And I, my brothers, my servants, and the men of the guard with me never took off our clothes. Each carried his weapon, even when washing. Thank God for his word. You may be seated. So, Nehemiah chapter 4, in the middle of this this series that I've called Rise Up and Build. This, This chapter, this chapter, every single person in this room can apply. Every single one of us can apply this chapter to our lives today. Because this chapter, this chapter deals with discouragement. And every single one of us, at some point or another, has either faced discouragement or will face discouragement. Every single one of us will be discouraged in one way or another. And that's not really the question, because we know that's going to come at some point, right? I hope that's not a huge shock to you. At some point, there's going to be something hard that discourages you. At some point, that's going to happen. Anybody shocked by that? No? Good. I hope that's not the groundbreaking news that you get today. So that's not really the question. The question is, how do we deal with it? How do you deal with discouragement? How do you deal with those trials? How do you deal with those struggles? So what I want to do as we look at this text is I want to, I, we're going to start, I'm going to show you some of the reasons that we are discouraged. Because I think Nehemiah shows those pretty clearly here, why we get discouraged. And I think that these are going to cover just about every single person in this room. But then I also want to show you some actions that we can take to overcome that. All right, so we're going to start with why we get discouraged, and I'm going to show you how to overcome that from Nehemiah 4 today. All right, so first, people often get discouraged in the work or in their faith because of fear. Fear is pretty powerful stuff. It really is. And fear can motivate us to shy away from our faith, shy away from the work that needs to be done. It can. It can be pretty disheartening, can't it? Of course it is. That's why it's called fear. See, but we see this fear manifest itself in several different ways here in this chapter. And the first is it's through these external pressures, right? It starts in the very first, very first verse of chapter 4, right? We get this ridicule that starts coming from the outside. In verse 1 it says, When Sanballat heard that we were rebuilding the wall, he became furious. He became furious. Why did he become furious? Did this really affect Sanballat all that much? Well, it did. It did. Maybe not directly, but indirectly. So understand this, understand this, whenever you start growing closer to Christ, it means that those around you stand to lose something. 
those around you will stand to lose something. And it's going to hurt, and they're not going to like that very much. I mean, just think about this. I'll just give you a, an extreme example here, okay? And I think everybody will pick up on this, all right? Just think about the al- alcoholic who falls in love with Christ, and he gives up drinking. He says, I'm done. I'm following Jesus. I'm never going to have another drink. I am done with that. There are those around him who stand to lose something from that, aren't there? There are. Of course there are. I mean, there's the bar where he went to drink. They're going to lose out financially. There's the drinking buddies who, buddies who feel like they lost their friends, and now they're thinking, well, what, now you think you're too good for us? Even though he never said that, he never indicated that, he just doesn't want to do those things anymore because he's fallen in love with Jesus. But they feel like they've lost a friend. So they start feeling that way, and then there's a whole bunch of other people around them who realize this person's not the same as they used to be. You know, we kind of liked it whenever he was goofy. We kind of liked it whenever he wasn't in his right mind. We don't like this new him. There's people around this guy who stand to lose something, aren't there? Of course there are. And whenever those people start to feel that loss, whenever they start to feel that change, they're all going to act rationally, aren't they? Okay, some of you caught sarcasm in that. Of course they're not going to act rationally. Just like Sanballat here, he got mad. It says he became furious. Those people around you, whenever your life starts changing, even if it's for the better, if they don't know Jesus and they don't see it as Christ in you, they're probably not going to be thrilled about some of the changes that take place. They probably won't. And they're probably not going to act rationally. They're probably going to be upset about it. So let's see what Sanballat does here. At the end of verse 1, it says, He mocked the Jews before his colleagues and the powerful men of Samaria and said, What are these pathetic Jews doing? Can they restore it by themselves? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they ever finish it? Can they bring these burnt stones back to life from the mounds of rubble? Then Tobiah, the Ammonite, who was beside him, said, Indeed, even if a fox climbed up what they are building, he would break down their stone wall. Even if a fox climbed it, he's going to tear it down. They start mocking him, saying, what in the world are these pathetic and feeble Jews? What are these pathetic people trying to pull here? What are they trying to get at? And I actually liked what Darren Biles said. He's a professor at Southwestern. I've quoted him before. I like what he said. He said, through this series of questions, Tobiah and, uh, and Sanballat, they belittle the people's abilities. They challenge their ambitions. They mock their optimism. They attack their enthusiasm, and they undermine their confidence. That's what they're doing with this line of questioning. They're saying, what in the world are you doing? You can't do that. <laughs> How often do we allow this, though, this same line of questioning to, de- to deter us from doing what God has called us to do? I mean, really. Think about this for a minute. I've heard of people who are afraid to talk about their faith um, because they're worried about what their friends or their families are going to say or think. I've been that way. I say I've heard people. I've been that guy. So of course I feel, feel that fear. I don't want to be mocked any more than anybody else does. But really quick, just, just think a minute for, about who these questions were focused on. Think about who all of these questions were focused on. Throughout this line of questioning, Sanballat says they, like the people themselves. He says they five times. Five times in that line of questioning. Who's he focused on? He's focused on what they can do. He's focused on what they can accomplish. He's not focused on God's power, but on what the people can do. And think about this for just a minute. If we we start thinking, okay, well, look at this. I can't do that. And whenever we start hearing those fears, those people saying, you know what? What do you think you're doing? Let's just go back to the alcoholic for a minute. You really think that you can give all this up? Yeah, you'll be fine for about a week, and then you're going to fall off the wagon. Yeah, sure you can. What, you think you're better than us now? Yeah, you're pretty hot stuff, aren't you? 
Yeah, you can't do that. You're never going to make it. You can't do that. And over and over and over again, they get these external pressures, these people on the outside attacking them, mocking them, saying things about it that would make them want to quit. All for what? It creates fear. I'm going to fail. Maybe they're right. I can't do this. But where is their focus? Their focus is on what they can do. The good news about the Christian faith is it has very little to do with what you can do. Let me rephrase. It has nothing to do with what you can do. It has to do everything with what God can do. And we're going to see that again here in just a minute. So just keep that in mind. We see these external pressures and they start to create fear um, through these external pressures. And because, because this, this starts out with these, this verbal assault, it, it builds. And these external pressures, and they build until, until there's actually attacks, right? You get down to verse 7. Verse 7, and things start to intensify. It says, When Sanballat, Tobiah, the Arabs, Ammonites, and the Ashdodites heard that the repair of the walls in, in Jerusalem was progressing and that the gaps were being closed, they became furious. Okay, so Sanballat wasn't content just being angry by himself, was he? He, pull, he pulled in his buddies. He's like, no, they're going to be angry with me. They're going to be angry. I'm going to trash talk these people until everybody's angry. So the people, they didn't allow this verbal abuse to stop them. So Sam Ballot, he brings in his posse. And now they're all furious. And in verse 8, it says that they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and throw it into confusion. And what you see is these people that are listed, essentially what's, what's happening is here, here is Nehemiah saying they came from every direction. This would have surrounded the city. These were people to the north, south, east, and west. So this is all around the city that these people are now. He's saying all of these people, they came together and they plotted against the city of Jerusalem, against the Jewish people. And they plotted this attack on all sides. And the sole intent of all of it, and the sole intent of this attack was, uh, attack was to stop the work. Right? To stop the work of building something. They wanted to throw them in confusion so that the progress would stop. So we see that this builds until it just starts out as verbal attacks and then it strengthens whenever those verbal attacks don't work. So whenever in opposition to your faith, whenever opposition to you changing to become more like Christ, whenever that starts to build, don't be surprised. It will build. And we see it here in the text. It's going to progress and it gets stronger and stronger. See, the next way we see this fear in the text that starts to manifest itself is a lack of focus. Is this lack of focus. In verse 12, um, it, see, these, these attacks, these, these verbal assaults, and then these on, on incoming attacks, they start to make the people lose sight of their work, right? And these external pressures, they have affected them now internally. So it starts out external, but now we see this fear building inside of these people. It's starting to affect them internally. Verse 12 says that the Jews who live nearby arrived. They said to us time and again, literally what it says is ten times. That's kind of like me saying, wow, man, that happened like a million times. That's a, that's a Hebrew it's a Hebrew way of saying it happened over and over and over again. So this happens over and over. These people bring these reports time and again. Everywhere you turn, they attack us. So what happened? What happened? These people had been focused on their work, and it was progressing. They were making headway. They were, they were laser-focused on what God would have them to do. But now these attacks are coming, and they've let this fear start to build up in them. And now they're more focused on their enemies than they are on the work that God gave them. They're more focused on the opposition. They've taken their focus off of, off of the goal and placed it on their enemy. And if all this had been allowed to continue, I suspect the work would have failed. But we'll come back to that here in just a minute. Again, these are reasons we fear, and we'll see how we overcome them here in just a minute. 
Next way we see fear here in the text is that, uh, and this one's a little more subtle, but through past failures. See, this chapter, this chapter in a lot of ways, it has some echoes of Numbers chapter 13. And some of you are thinking, I don't know what happened in Numbers 13. That's okay. That's okay. See, the people are out in the wilderness. The Jewish people, they've left Egypt. Moses has come, and they've seen this great exodus out of Egypt. Now they're out here in the wilderness. They are on the brink of entering the promised land. They send spies out into the promised land, right? And they go out, and the spies spies bring back this report. They bring back this report, and they're saying, man, the land is amazing, flowing with milk and honey. It's got everything we could possibly want. This is great land. There's a problem, though. The enemy there is really strong. And they allowed their focus to come off of what God had called them to do, and they placed it on their enemies. And because of that, they failed. In a lot of ways, this chapter echoes Numbers 13. It echoes this, right? Even notice that they had ten reports. You know how many spies came back with a bad report from the promised land? It was ten. They got these bad reports. And they allowed it to take their focus off of what God had, and they allowed the report of the ten to breed fear and paralyze them. See, but how many times do we do that? How many times do I do that? I'll just tell you, it's all the time. Thinking about past fears, past mistakes, failures in my own past. Like, I can't overcome that. I've tried. And some of you are thinking, Jared, you don't understand. I've done everything I can possibly think of to overcome whatever that obstacle was. There's this sin in my life that I can't get rid of. It's just building here, and it's there, and I've done everything I can think to do. You don't know how many times I have fallen on my face. I've wept before God saying, God, take this from me. And this temptation, it keeps coming back, and it keeps coming back, and it keeps... I've failed too many times. I don't don't think I can do anything else. You know what that is? That's fear paralyzing what you can do. And these people, they could have looked at the past failures of the Jewish people. They could have looked at the failure of their predecessors, and they said, you know what, we've tried this before. And it's failed. I don't know how many times over all the years they've been back in Israel. I don't know how many times they tried to rebuild the wall. We, we don't know. We don't know how many times. But over and over again, they failed. And they failed. And they failed. It would have been really easy for them to say, you know what? The enemy's attacking all over the place. Um, our focus is gone. We've failed too many times. We just can't do it. Let's just give up and go home. You know how easy that would have been? They allow, they could have allowed this fear to cripple them. See, uh, think about it like this. Think about it like this. How many of you, how, fun poll. I actually want to see hands for a minute. This will lighten it up just a little bit, okay? How many of you can ride a bike? Is there anybody who can't ride a bike? I just want to embarrass you for a minute. Oh, man, nobody? That's no fun. Oh, well, good. I'm glad you can all ride a bike. How many of you have ever crashed a bike? Okay. Uh, I, I remember I was... I was a kid. I was probably not much older than my daughter is now. Um, and I remember Sunday morning. There was a Sunday morning. We went to church every Sunday. Um, and perfectly, uh, uh, Sunday school started at 930. Church started at 1030, a lot like it does here. So we, and we sat on the second row every single Sunday. So we were going to be at church. There was no question about that. But my, I've got three brothers. We got up. We, we were ready to go. We were waiting on mom and dad. It's probably really one of my brothers fixing their hair just real perfect. Um, that's a joke. My brothers, well, one of them has hair. The others kind of keep it shaved off. But anyway, so y'all don't know him. That makes a better joke if you can see him. <laughs> um, but anyway, so I think about this. My brothers and I, we were outside, and we were waiting on mom and dad, getting ready to go to church. And I remember I was on my bike, uh, on my, my bike. And I'm out here riding. We had a pretty quiet street, so we would ride up and down the road. And uh, I, I, was, I was old enough that I thought, I'm going to start doing some stunts on my bike. I'm going to learn how to do some cool stuff. So I was popping a wheelie in the middle of the road, right, pulling the front tire. I thought I was pretty hot stuff. 
until that front tire came back down and hit. And you know what my handlebars did? They went whoop. And you know where I went then? I went over my handlebars. And I crashed in the middle of the road. I crashed. Fortunately enough, um, I, have, I have a loving father um, who came out. He picked me up. He cleaned me up and took me inside and said, you know what? It's okay. Let's get you all cleaned up. And he even, I actually think he lied to me at this point. Don't tell him I said that. But I think he lied to me at this point. He took my bike and he said, yeah, that, you know, that set screw right there in the middle, that, that, that screw that holds your handlebars in place, I think it was loose. I think it was, I don't think he really did anything to it, but I think he did it to make me feel better about myself. Um, so he said, I think that was loose. Anyway, so he takes it and I'm like, okay, fine. But I remember then going to get back on my bike, I lost my confidence. I didn't want to get on that bike. I remember the pain of the crash. I allowed a past failure to dictate my future. Couldn't they have done that really easily here in Jerusalem? Allowed their past failures to dictate their future? Why try? It's going to fail again. Why get back on the bike? I'm just going to crash again. They could have allowed that. They could have allowed those fears to come in and stop them from moving forward. See, people often get discouraged in their work or in their faith because of fear. And I understand. We'll talk about how to overcome that in just a minute. The second reason we see that people um, get discouraged in the work is because of fatigue. I'll be a little more brief here. Because of fatigue. Chapter, 10, or chapter 4, verse 10. It says, In Judah it was said, The strength of the laborer fails, since there is so much rubble. We will never be able to rebuild the wall. <laughs> These guys were tired. They'd been working, trying to build something. They'd been working on this wall. And they're just looking around saying, Man, there is so much rubble. It is so broken. I'm tired. I don't know if we're ever going to. The strength is going to fail. So not only do they allow what Sanballat and his cronies to affect how they were acting, but now they're seeing all their work and they're just thinking, I don't know if I can keep going because I'm tired. Look, I, I, don't ever, I don't ever want to tell you the Christian faith is easy. Um, but don't, don't, don't mishear me. Jesus says that his yoke is light. So don't misunderstand me. But oftentimes we think, okay, well, just pray a prayer and then you're saved and everything's good and rainbows and sunshine. No, it's not. Christian faith is hard. No, the concept is simple. concept is simple, right? Come to Jesus, place your life on, put your life in Jesus. That's, that's it. That's how simple it is. That concept is incredibly easy. But there's times where it's hard. And that, that rubble of your life just keeps on saying, you know what, you failed, you failed, you failed, you failed. And you just say, I'm tired. I'm tired. I don't know what to do. And I think this is why Jesus tells his followers to count the cost. Count the cost. It's not always going to be easy. At times, that's going to lead to frustration. Because that's what happened with these people, right? They started to become frustrated. And that's why they say, you know what? Our, our labor, our, our muscles, our strength is failing. It's not good. They're just frustrated. They're tired. And how many times do we struggle? We run into opposition and we just want to give up because we're tired and we've tried and we just don't seem to be gaining. And man, just look at all the rubble that there's still in my life. Y'all, I've been a Christian for 20 years. You know how much rubble there still is in my life? And at times I'm looking around thinking, man, what a mess. I don't know if I'm ever going to get all this cleaned up. And you know what, on my own I won't. But the good news is we don't have to operate in our strength. But I want to urge you today, don't be discouraged because of your fears or because you're tired. Because I told you a few weeks ago we would have to be persistent. I hope that's not a surprise to you. 
And if we're going to be building anything in the church personally or corporately, we're going to need to be steadfast in our resolve not to allow fear or failure to deter us from building what God started. Don't allow fear or failure to dictate how you move forward. Okay, so here in the text we find that people often get discouraged in their work or in faith because of fear or fatigue. But how do we, how do we actually overcome that? Right? There's the problem. You know I, what I've discovered? I think it's funny. Rod talked about fake news. I'm going to tell you. You know what I've discovered? Especially whenever we talk about politics. You all want to talk about politics in church? Somebody said no. Uh, good, because I don't either. But you know what I think is interesting in politics? All of us, we can turn on the news channel and we can identify the problem really fast. Y'all ever felt that way? Like, we are really good. If you don't believe me, you know what? Talk to me afterwards. I'll tell you a bunch of problems. Like, a whole bunch of problems. Ask me how to fix it? I have no idea. We can identify the problem. We're good at that. But how do we fix the problem? Okay? We see that discouragement is a problem. How do we fix it? How do we fix it? Well, I think Nehemiah teaches us some things here. And I want to show you three actions you can take to overcome this discouragement. And the first way to overcome it is to focus on Christ. Focus on Christ. Incredibly simple. Focus on Christ. Right? We see this focus on the Lord. Verse 4. Verse 4 says, Nehemiah, we see Nehemiah's very first response is to what? Pray. Nehemiah's very first response is to pray. And I told you, I told you a few weeks ago, it's just kind of as a sub-point, like this would be an emphasis of this book. Prayer would come up again and again and again. Nehemiah, if he's anything, he's a praying man. He runs into an obstacle, he prays about it. He stops and he prays. And nothing reorients a person quite like prayer. Nothing does quite like prayer does. Because as we pray, well, what are we doing? As we pray, we are like, okay, we are tired, we are worn out, we're scared of what's going on around us, we don't know how to go forward, and we stop when we pray. You know what we're doing in that moment? What we're doing is we're saying, God, I am insufficient, and you are sufficient. I can't do it, but you can. It changes his focus. See, oftentimes we think of prayer as changing God's mind, right? Like, I'm going to go to God, and I'm going to set him straight. I'm going to teach him what he needs to do. We may not, I hope you never say that. Please don't say that. I feel like that might be like lightning bolt zapping you from heaven or something. Um, that's a joke. Um, but, I mean, sometimes we think that way. Like, practically, that's how we act. We go to God and we're like, God, here's what this situation needs. Let me tell you what this situation needs. Really, what prayer should be doing is changing you more than it changes God. Like, it reorients us. We're saying, God, I am incapable. See this mess in my life? See the mess I have made in my life? I can't clean this up. There's too much rubble. My strength has failed. I am weak. I, I can't do it, but God, I know you can. That's what prayer does, and that's what Nehemiah does here. He's reorienting himself. So whenever you're unsure of what to do, whenever you're unsure of where to turn, whenever you're unsure of how to clean up the mess that you're in, pray. Pray. And you know what? Even whenever you think you do know how to clean up the mess you're in, pray anyway. You know why? Because, see, we tend to think we're pretty smart. Let me rephrase. I tend to think I'm pretty smart. And I think i got a lot of answers. And you know what I've found? Is that a lot of times, even whenever I think I've got the solution, God has a better one. So even whenever you think you have it all figured out, pray about it anyway. We need to be people who pray constantly. And see, his prayer, whenever he prays, um, it, it, this prayer has been called an imprecatory prayer. Okay, uh, Y'all ever heard the term imprecatory? Anybody? A few of you, some of you are looking around like, I don't want to admit that I haven't. It's okay. Imprecatory is a weird word. 
Um, but there's some psalms that are called imprecatory psalms also. And what these, what these are is essentially, essentially what this, this word imprecatory means is that they're calling on God's judgment against somebody. They're saying, God, your judgment is perfect, your, your justice is perfect, and what, what's happening in these psalms or in this prayer, they're saying, God, like, pour, out, pour out your justice. Like, let your justice be known, and that's not going to be good for them. And that's what he does, right? He says, destroy our enemies. Like, don't forgive them. God, pour out your wrath against them. And that's what he prays, right? And some of you are thinking, oh, good, I, I love praying prayers like that. I know exactly what God needs to do in some of these situations. Oh, boy. Now, I want to be careful, um, and I think this is a really important thing to note, especially whenever we come across prayer like this. Um, it's important to note that when these things are prayed against enemies, these are prayers against God's enemies. Not, maybe not against somebody who thinks differently than me, it's against God's enemy. And it's also important to note that our enemies, by the way, they're not physical. They're spiritual enemies, and they're all over the place, and we ought to be praying for God to come in and destroy the grip of Satan in people's lives destroy the grip of evil in somebody's life. So, actually, God actually says in his word that he doesn't want any to perish. He doesn't want any to die apart from saving knowledge of him. So, I have a hard time whenever people say, you know what, I prayed for that person to get what they deserve. You know what, don't do that because they might be praying that you get what you deserve. Yeah, that's not going to go well for you. So I want to caution you in that. These are prayers against God's enemies against his enemies, against the powers of evil, against the people who would stand against God's chosen people. So, we see this reorienting prayer. And then look at verse 14. Look at verse 14. It says, After I, uh, after I made an inspection, I stood up and said to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people, Don't be afraid of them. Remember the great and awe-inspiring Lord and fight for your countrymen, your sons and daughters, your wives and homes. And I talked about some of those motivation things uh, a week or two ago, so I'm going to move past that. But, but look at what he does here. He says, look, look, remember the great and awe-inspiring Lord. He says, yeah, we know that there's enemies out there. They've attacked us like they're coming against us. Don't let that discourage you. Who are they? We serve God. The great and awe-inspiring Lord. Nehemiah, even as he's planning, he looks around and he says, don't worry about these people. Instead, look at God. Let the fact that you serve the God of the universe drive you. Don't let the fear of your enemies mocking or their attacks. Don't worry about them. Because God is on your side. And if God is for us, you know who can be against us? Paul actually asked that rhetorical question, right? If God is for us, who can be against us? The answer is no one, by the way. But how many times do we look at our enemies and we think, I don't know how to overcome this? Are you kidding me? Did you know, fun fact, did you know that God literally raised people from the dead? What do you have to be afraid of? Like, really? By the way, did you know what happens at the end of the book? You know who wins? (laughs) What are you afraid of? What am I afraid of? What are we scared of? And that's what Nehemiah says. These people over here, that struggle in your life, that opposition, so what? You serve a God who who created them. Why are you afraid of the created whenever you have the creator on your side? Like, what, what are we thinking? If God is for us, who can be against us? And there's something similar at the end of verse 20. It says, even though the people, you know, they, he goes through and he tells them their responsibility, he points out very clearly at the end of verse 20, he says, it's God who fights for them. 
It's God who fights for them. It's God who's on our side. And the point is, if we focus on ourselves or on our enemies, we're going to fail. Um, you, you all know what? Um, you know what you can accomplish on your own? <laughs> I really, I'm going to insult you all here for a minute. Yeah, yeah. Zero. Nothing. Nothing. Okay, now that might be an overstatement because, you know, you, know, you can do some good stuff. But you know what that's going to do for you in the big picture? Zero. Nothing. Your best work, it's not going to do you any good. The Bible says that your best work is like filthy rags, right? Your best work, done on your own, doesn't do you any good. None, whatsoever. So you know what you need? You need a God who's done something bigger than you, living and breathing in you, like moving you. And you know how that happens? It's by faith in Jesus. By faith in Jesus. These people knew they needed something bigger than themselves. They weren't going to be able to do it on their own. I mean, just think about Peter for a minute, right? Jesus comes walking up to this ship as they're walking. He, just, he comes up to this ship. That's out in the middle of this storm, right? Comes up walking on water. Just Jesus out here walking on water. No big deal. It's Tuesday. Comes up like, what? What? Now I'm just going to sit here just like my jaw would hit the deck. Not, not Peter, right? What does Peter do? He says, Lord, if it's really you, let me come to you. <laughs> God says, come. Jesus says, come. Like, come. So what's he do? He gets out and he takes that first few steps and he's laser focused on Jesus. Takes that first step. Everything's good. Focus. Takes second step. He's good. And then lightning flashes over here and the thunder rolls and he goes, oh my, look at that wave. And you know what starts to happen? He sinks. He sinks. Why? Is it because God was incapable of holding him up? No. It's because his focus shifted away from Jesus. His focus shifted. That was the problem. His focus moved. And if you want to overcome discouragement in your life, if you want to overcome fear and challenges in your life, it's pretty simple. You focus on Christ. Now, let me rephrase. That sounds simple. Conceptually, that's simple. Practically, that may not always be easy because the thunder might be loud. The disturbances in your life, they might be pretty loud and they might feel like they demand your attention. But please, I want to urge you, if you feel discouragement, keep your focus on Christ. Second thing we want to do if we want to overcome discouragement is to devise a strategy. Right? So we said focus on Christ, trust in his power, trust in his, power, in his goodness and his grace and his mercy in your life. Right? So what that means is we pray and then we do like that thing that I like to talk about. Right? You sit down in your recliner Sunday afternoon, you pull the lever and you put your feet up and you watch God work. Right? That's it. Maybe not. Maybe not quite. See, we talked about Carrie Underwood for a minute this morning. I think that's perfect because I actually want to sing Carrie Underwood's Jesus Take the Wheel for a minute. Because um, that's a lot of times how we approach Christianity. That's how we approach faith. It's like, you know what? I'm going, I'm going 70 miles an hour down the highway. I trust you, Jesus, so take the wheel. You know what's going to happen when you do that? Just, just curious. You know what's going to happen when that happens? You take your hands off that wheel going 70 miles an hour down the highway. Hunter, what happens? I'm so glad he's okay, or else that would have been a really bad joke. Um, I'm glad you're okay, man. Um, but seriously, you take your hands off the wheel going 70 down the highway, you know what happens? You go off the highway. You go off the road. So why do we approach the Christian faith that way? Jesus, I trust you, so I'm just going to let everything go, and we're going to see what happens here. We might be going 70 miles an hour down the interstate, but I'm just going to close my eyes. I'm going to turn up the radio a little bit because I'm in this thing here and I'm feeling it. And I'm just going to trust you here. 
That's not trust, that's stupidity. Sorry, that was insulting. I'm not sorry, I don't care. You know what, I'm too far in now. Um, it is. Like, don't do that. That's, that's crazy. And you see what these people did here. They prayed. Why? Because they trusted God. They knew they needed his power. They knew that they needed his presence. They knew that on their own, they couldn't accomplish this task. But then you see what they do. They start devising a strategy. They think about it and they go to work. They don't say, you know what, God, take care of the rubble. And then sit there and start watching these stones, waiting for them to float. No, they make a plan. I actually stole this line from, uh, from Darren Biles. I already quoted him once, but he said, get rid of the rubbish. Get rid of the rubbish. And I love that rubbish thing because we, we say garbage because we're from northwest, or trash because we're from northwest Missouri. But, uh, but you know, I like hearing the British accent, the, the rubbish. Um, I, I love that. So I, I like to get rid of the rubbish. And the point is, whenever you're facing discouragement, take out the trash. Get rid of the garbage. Like, whenever you start hearing those things coming into your life saying, you know what, uh, you're not good enough, you're not big enough, you can't accomplish this, you can't overcome that enemy, you know what you do? You say, you know what, lies, I'm going to say something else, so if you've got kids and you don't want them to hear this word, you just go ahead and cover their ears, tell them to shut up. I'm going to get in all kinds of trouble. I said two things I shouldn't have said today. What you need to say is, I'm not going to believe that this thing is bigger than God. I'm not going to believe that this lie says, I can't overcome this thing. I'm not going to believe, I'm not going to believe that this person can't be saved. I'm not going to believe that by God's grace I can't overcome this sin. I'm not going to believe it. Get rid of that trash. Don't listen to that. I mean, you see in verse 10, they start saying, you know what, the, the laborers, they're, they're weak. They can't keep on going. Judah's all kinds of discouraged. They're thinking, you know what, they're right. This task is too big for me. I can't do it. Get rid of the lie. Cast it out. Don't let it sit there and dwell in the back of your mind thinking, well, maybe there is some truth to that. It is really hard. No, get rid of it. Refocus on God. Think about that. And that's part of the strategy. Get rid of the lie. These Jewish people, specifically the tribe of Judah, they had bought into the lie and it was going to cost them. Second thing, we see Nehemiah as he's devising this strategy. He positions the people in the right spot, right? Verse 13, it says that the threat was great in these places where the wall was low, right? Now, the gaps have been closed in, but there's low spots in the wall where they haven't been built up as high as other spots. So what does he do? He says, where the threat is greatest, I'm going to post guards. That's a crazy concept, isn't it? Man, that was mind-blowing, Jared. Yeah, that's brilliant. You guard the weak spot. Okay, thanks for that. Okay, so it's so simple. Why don't we do that in our own lives? Like, we've got weak spots in our lives. I've got weak spots in my life. Why am I not posting a guard at that? Instead, what we're doing is a lot of times what we're content doing is we're content saying, you know what, I know there's a weak spot in my life. I'm going to focus on the strong part over here because it's prettier. And you know what that does? That gives the enemy a way in. And they come in, and then I don't care how strong your strong part is. It doesn't matter because you're already being destroyed. He posts a guard at the weak spot. So whenever we identify those weak spots, we need to take steps to protect those areas. Y'all do that in your life? Think about this. Since I've used the alcoholic multiple times, I hope you don't think I'm beating up on alcoholics today because they need the grace of God no more than I do. So I hope you don't think that for right now. But let's just, let's just use that again. Would it be wise for the alcoholic to say, you know what, I have... I have this mission over here at the bar. I'm going to go and evangelize there. No, post a guard. 
Don't go to those places where the temptation is strongest, where you're the weakest. Don't be a fool. Like, be wise about how you do it. Be smart. Strategize. So whenever you identify those weak points, post a guard. And even whenever the threat, even whenever the immediate threat was over, you see what Nehemiah does? He has a continued guard, doesn't he? He doesn't, he doesn't say, okay, well, the wall's been built up a little bit. They're not really attacking right now. So you know what? We can just we can lay down our weapons for now. No, go to verse 15. Even whenever they thought the problem was under control, they still had a system to protect the city. It says, when our enemies heard that we knew their scheme and that God had frustrated it, every one of us returned to his own work on the wall. From that day on, half of my men did the work while the other half held spears, shields, bows, and armor. The officers supported the people of Judah. You remember those people who were weak and were discouraged? They supported them. Um, where was I? Uh, now I've lost my spot. The laborers who carried the loads worked with one hand and held a weapon with the other. Each of the builders had his sword strapped around his waist while they were building. They don't lay down their weapons. They strap them on and they keep going to work. They've got people carrying stones with one hand, a weapon in their other hand. They're going to get the work done, and it may go slower. It may be harder. It may be maybe more time-consuming. But it's going to be done right and it's going to be protected. So they, get, they continue to strategize. A few things to note here. First of all, like I told you, they never stop guarding, even whenever the threat seemed to be lessened. And second, each person now has progressed even further. Right in the beginning, these were people who were weak and defeated. They were sitting around this city. They weren't building anything. They said, we don't know if we can go on. Nehemiah comes in, gives them this big pep talk. They start building. So they have progressed. They were nothing. Now they're workers. They're doing something. And now they've progressed a step further. Not only are they workers, but now they're warriors. Y'all, we need to be the same way. Each of us in the church, at times we're going to need to be workers building up the church, but there's going to be times where every single one of us needs to be prepared to fight. I'm not talking about physical. I hope you don't want to go outside and start boxing or anything because, I don't know, I'm not a real strong guy. You all beat me up. First Peter chapter 3, verse 15. It says, but in your hearts regard Christ the Lord is holy, ready at any time to give a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Y'all ready at any time? I think it's perfect that it's the sword that they have strapped around their waist. You know what the sword of the Spirit is? Anybody? Ephesians? Ephesians, you know what it says? This thing. Yeah, Word of God. This book. Sword of the Spirit. You want to strap the sword around your waist so that way whenever you're out doing the work of building something in your life, so that way you're ready to defend Know this book. Inside, outside, memorize it, apply it to your life. Know this book so that you have your sword ready to draw anytime you need to defend it. Have the sword ready. So we see it. And then we see the leaders down in the trenches. We talked about this last week, so I'm going to be pretty brief here. But notice that this part of the strategy included these leaders down in the trenches, side by side, working shoulder to shoulder like we talked about last week. Nehemiah, he wasn't sitting up in the tower watching everybody else do the work. He was down in the trenches, working alongside the people. In verse 23, verse 23, we see that Nehemiah didn't see himself above the work at all. Instead, it says, and I, my brothers, my servants, and the men of the guard with me, never took off our clothes. Each carried his weapon, even while washing. Nehemiah set that example. He was down in the trenches. He never even took off his clothes. He kept his sword with him all the time. It says, even while washing. Even while washing. Kept his sword with him. Now, I just want to ask, do you think that they made this strategy um, because they thought God wasn't really in control of everything? 
course that's not why they made the strategy. It's not why they made this plan. Of course it's not because they doubted God somehow. Instead, it's because they trusted God. This strategy, this plan, it wasn't because they thought, okay, well, we need to come up with our own plot because God's not going to do anything. Instead, what they said is God's going to fight with us, so let's make this plan. Y'all see how that works? We oftentimes think trusting God means you don't do anything. It's just the opposite. You trust God, so then you trust that he's going to work in you even whenever the task is bigger than you. And you get up and you go to work. You do what God's called you to do. I've got an example, but I'm going to run out of time here. Too many times we pretend that we pray, and that's the end. Don't pray, then pick up the sword. Pick up your trowel and let and go, go to work. Go to work. Um, I actually love this. Um, Charles Spurgeon. Charles Spurgeon. Some of you all know who Charles Spurgeon is, um, 19th century preacher. Um, I would argue one of the greatest preachers ever. Um, brilliant man. Um, preached to more people than I would ever dream to preach to. Saw more people come to salvation under his preaching than I could ever even dream of. This man was a fantastic preacher. Well, he came out with this magazine publication, and you know what he named it? He named it The Sword and Trowel. Because he wanted to see people who were both warriors and workers. People who had the sword strapped on them, but they were out there with their trowel, going along the wall, building it up, putting the mortar down, building the wall, building the church. He wanted to see that. And I love that picture of people who are both willing to work and defend the work. That's the kind of people we need to be. So if we want to overcome discouragement, we need to focus on Christ. We need to devise a strategy. And third, we need to support the community. We need to support the community. So we see this rally cry, right? Verse 18. It says, Each of the builders had a sword strapped around his waist while while he was building. And the one who sounded the ram's horn was beside me. Jump to verse 20. It says, Nehemiah tells him, Wherever you hear the sound of the ram's horn, rally to us there. Our God will fight for us. See, sometimes we get this backwards. Sometimes we get this backwards. Um, sometimes we see people in the church who are incredibly gifted individuals, incredibly gifted in an area. And we're like, you know what? They need to work. And let me say this. You're right. People in the church, I mean, if you're gifted, use those giftings to build up the church. Absolutely, undoubtedly, yes. Use your giftings to build up the church. Yes, yes, yes. But see, sometimes we see someone, someone over here, right? We see this person over here, and they're struggling with something. They're struggling with this thing over here, and they, they just can't seem to get out of this mess. They're under attack constantly, and they just can't seem to get out of their own way. All the while, we've got this other person over here, and you know what? They're really gifted, and we're, just, we're like, you know what? This person is incredibly gifted at building in this way, so let them go to work. You know what? This person's over here struggling, but you know what? This person is too gifted in what they're doing to stop doing what they're doing. Let them keep on going. But that's not what Nehemiah does here, is it? He sees sees gifted people out here at work all over the place. But he says, you know what? Whenever we get attacked over here, rally to that person. Rally to that area. Rally to them. You want to make it personal in your life? You're thinking, you know what? We see this. Let me back up. I want to apply this to somebody's life personally. I'll do it to the preacher since I'm here. Okay? How many times have you seen preachers, like famous preachers? I'm definitely not a famous preacher, y'all. But we see famous preachers out there, and they are incredibly gifted orators. They can speak, and people are like, man, that is good. Just like almost breathtaking, give you chills as they speak. But then how many times do we hear about that same preacher, same speaker, who has a moral failing? We find that, okay, yeah, 
Yeah, they were amazing speakers, but you know how many times they were unfaithful to their wife? They were amazing speakers, but you know what? They were a real jerk behind closed doors. They were real, they were amazing preachers, but you know what? Financially, they wrecked the church. They were amazing preachers, but behind closed doors, they bullied people into getting what they wanted. They were all about me, me, me. Oh, man, what? what? But shouldn't we just let them keep on going? Because they are so gifted. Look at how good they are. Are you kidding me? No, they're going to be destroyed because they have this gaping hole in the wall. That, ra- that ram's horn needs to sound, and they need to rush to that area. They need to come say, you know what? The enemy is battling here. Maybe that means that we have to put the work on hold. Put a pin in it right here. We'll be back, but we have to go build up this weak spot. We have to rally here to fight off this enemy because you know what? You know what happens with a lot of those people? A lot of those folks that I just referenced who have that attack in another way, they come and they start attacking their pride or they start, come and start attacking their marriage or start attacking their family. You know what happens to a lot of those people? They fail and then they're like, you know what? The church did nothing for me. And they walk away from it. What would have happened if, let's just say, if there had been people in that church, they had had brothers or sisters come around them and say, you need to stop the work you're doing, and you need to take care of this weak spot. Now, that's an easy example to pick on as preachers, but you know what? Every single one of us has those weak spots, and oftentimes we think, you know what? I'm gifted in hospitality. I'm gifted in mercy ministries. I'm gifted in this ministry, that ministry, and I just need to keep on building. I need to keep on working. Maybe there's a time where you need to say, pause. I'm going to stop the work here because the ram's horn sounded over here, and I need to come, and I need to fend off that enemy. See, I think we get that backwards sometimes. Sometimes we just think they need to keep on going. But instead, whenever we see a brother or sister hurting, whenever we see somebody struggling, we need to stop the work and rally to one another over and over again. Whenever you see a brother or sister struggling, what you need to do is just stop and go to them. People are more important than the work you're doing. You know what the church is supposed to be marked by? A radical love for one another. And if we don't have that in the church, what are we doing? If you don't love somebody enough to stop what you're doing and go and take care of them, because you know what, I got something more pressing over here. You know what that says? It says, I don't love you, I love my work. They sounded the ram's horn. So whenever you realize that you're struggling with something, but you think the ministry is too important, you're just wrong. You are just wrong. Um. I'm going to run out of time, y'all, again. You know what? They said last week I didn't have an end time. I don't have an end time. Y'all are going to be here for a while. Um, so um, I think this is me speculating here for just a minute, but this kind of cuts both ways. Not only do we need to be willing to stop what we're doing and rush to those people who are struggling, who are hurting, not only do we need to be ready to do that, but that also means that we need to be open and honest about when we're struggling. Um, and I'll just tell you, I think one of the biggest problems we have in the, in the American church is, um, is this, this I'm perfect kind of thing. Like, everybody's good. Uh, I'm all good. You're all good. Let's just come together and let's smile because that's what you're supposed to do whenever you come to church, right? Everybody's supposed to be happy, right? Okay, yeah, we all do that. Um, and and I, I know it happens because I see, I see people week in and week out. We come together in a place like this, um, and we start thinking, um, you know what? I'm going to walk through those doors there. Peppy's going to be right there with the coffee, and of course I'm going to smile because she's got coffee. Like, everybody's happy about that. So, so, and 
never mind, whatever. Um, so we walk past Pappy, Peppy. We're all good. You know, we got our coffee. Well, I'm ready to go. Then we come, Danielle's standing there with the bulletins. And we're like, hey, how are you doing? Oh, I'm good. How are you? And we exchange these formalities all the while. We've had the worst week in our lives. The people at work are driving us nuts. We want to quit our jobs. Our husband's a jerk at home. And we're like, you know what? I don't even know what I'm going to do with him. Our kids are a wreck. And they've been screaming at us the whole way to church. And now we're just ready to pull our hair out and just stop everything. And then we come in and we're thinking, I got to sit here and I don't know what we're going to do for lunch. And everybody's going to be yelling at me because they're hungry afterwards. And this just isn't good. It's not fun. What's the point? But but whenever we walk in those doors, we walk by and we smile. We know you're going to walk around the corner. You're going to see three guys up there in the booth. Jerry's probably up there talking to him about something. And you know what? We're going to say, hey, good morning. And we're going to put on this smile. And we're like, everybody's good. Right? Anybody? Am I the only one that does that? No? Y'all there? Anybody else do that? Quick show of hands. I'm, I'm Really, did anybody else do that? Okay, so some of you do. Some of you are liars. Okay, I'm good with that. I'm not good with that. We'll work on that later, though. I think one of the biggest problems we have in the American church is this, this, this charade. Um, I, I warned my wife that I might get a little emotional today. Um, and maybe it's because I've had a long week, y'all. Um, if, I, if I want to lead y'all in being a little more open, a little more vulnerable, I'll, I'll take that first step. This has been a long week for me, um, an emotionally draining week. I spent several hours this week um, at the care center, and I can't tell you too much about it because, well, that's part of my job and some of it's confidentiality. But what I can tell you is uh, I stood there and I held the hand of a dying woman for hours, a woman who was ready to die. Y'all haven't had the best week. It's been emotionally draining, and I come in this place, and I come in here together with my brothers and sisters on this morning, and I'm thinking... I've got to put on a smile. I've got to come up here and I've got to preach this, this text and I've got to pretend everything's okay. Y'all, I don't want to. So what I'll, I, I want to do, and I'm going to make y'all uncomfortable for a minute. Um, y'all ready to be uncomfortable? I don't care. It's going to be anyway. Um, and my microphone might go out. So if you're watching online, I apologize. Um, I know for a fact without a doubt in my mind that I am not alone. I don't know who you are. I don't know what's going on in your life. But I'm actually going to do this, and this is going to make you all wildly uncomfortable, and some of you are thinking, I don't want to do this. Um, But I'm tired of the masquerade. You know, uh, Casting Crowns did that song called Stained Glass Masquerade, and it's about just that thing I'm talking about. Um, This idea that we come together and we need to all be perfect, put on these masks and pretend we're all okay. I don't want to do that today. Um, so I'm going to ask, is anybody else hurting? I actually want to do this. 